The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Squat Box. The headlines, industrial output in China rises for the first time this year, but retail sales and fixed asset investments sink. President Trump also turning up the heat, saying he doesn't want to speak to President Xi right now. CNBC sources confirmed the president is preparing an executive order to require key drugs to be made in the U.S. to reduce the country's dependence on foreign suppliers amid coronavirus-related shortfalls. Summoned to the Elysee, Sanofi gets in trouble with the French government and is forced to backtrack after the French pharma giant's boss suggests the US could get first dibs on its potential COVID vaccine. And BT declines to comment on a report suggesting it could sell its stake in OpenReach as a way to help fund its superfast fiber rollout. Plus, after an almighty row about getting Londoners back to work between the Mayor of London and indeed the Prime Minister, it looks like the £4 billion black hole that is TfL is going to have a temporary sticking plaster and commuters will get back to work after TfL announces their plans are to create a 100% service within weeks. Let's kick off the program with economic data. Industrial output in China rebounded in April as the country eased lockdown restrictions and factories reopened. Production rose 3.9%, which beat expectations and expanded for the first time this year. But retail sales remained under pressure, falling 7.5% for the month, which was worse than expected. Fixed asset investment was also down. Well, the markets have decided to focus on the positives here. And perhaps after several days of weaker markets, there is a little bit of uh, opportunistic bargain hunting going on. But that's the trade on the greater China markets right now. Uh, And we are in positive territory. But I think uh, interesting that these are not one or two percent gains. These are gains of two tenths of one percent or four tenths of one percent. Uh, in the context of the Hong Kong market. President Trump has threatened to end America's ties to China, saying, quote, we could cut off the whole relationship. Speaking to Fox Business News, the U.S. president explained he didn't want to speak with President Xi right now, adding, quote, they should have never let this happen and claiming a U.S. offer of help was rejected by Chinese authorities. A terrible thing happened, and you can look at it as a, a source. It, it took place in a certain, at a certain point. We asked to go over, and they said no. They didn't want our help. And I figured that was okay, because they must know what they're doing. So it was either stupidity, incompetence, or it was deliberate, one or the other. President Trump, let's bring in Frederick Newman, then co-head of Asian Economics Research at HSBC. 
Uh, Frederick, good morning to you. Let's just set aside President Trump for a moment and his impact on markets. And let's focus on this China data. The factory activity number looks very encouraging, but of course, it doesn't tell us very much about end user demand for the products that are being made in those factories. Taking the data in the whole, how positive or otherwise are you on the numbers? Well, we have a discrepancy here, and that is between supply and demand. We have supply coming back. Uh, You saw the industrial production numbers. We know that infrastructure spending is coming back. But really, the demand side is not catching up. The numbers in retail sales disappointing. And what that means is that probably we're going to see a buildup in excess inventory because nobody's buying this stuff. And that could lead to another slowdown in the manufacturing sector, perhaps in one or two months' time. And I think that's where you got this very cautious tone in markets because the end demand is just not catching up to supply. We are trying to read across from the reopening of the Chinese economy into what ultimately we will see with the Western economy here. And the message that you're giving us doesn't sound that positive at this point. Why are we not seeing stronger consumer activity, given that we're led to believe here that all areas of the country have now been reopened? Well, there are really two big factors that are holding back consumer demand. One is confidence, right? If you if you look at China, people are still wearing masks, they're still worried about going to restaurants, they're going now to cafes, and that is despite the official numbers showing low infection rates, there's this lingering fear that there might be another flare-up. So people are holding back. There's this lack of confidence. The second issue is that China also has seen a rise in unemployment in February. A lot of people have not gotten the job back. A lot of people took a big financial hit. And so that has deprived households of spending power. And you still feel that after effect of that. I think all of that points really to the need to that the government just has to inject even more fiscal stimulus, not just during lockdowns, but particularly afterwards to get the economies back on track. Good morning to you, my friend. Frederick, I've taken your advice and I've looked at your chart two on your copy, um, what you've sent out to a lot of people for for 2021. You say it's going to warm our heart. I think it's the most V-shaped thing I've seen for weeks as well. Uh, Chinese growth, nearly 8%. Ex-China Asia growth, nearly 7% as well. Across the board, I see green shoots as well. You're way too optimistic, aren't you? Well, you know, it's easy to generate those growth numbers in 2021 because the base effect is just so low. So you don't need much growth to get very punchy headline numbers. But what really matters is whether at the end of 2021, we above the level where we started in January 2020 before this thing broke out. And there are very few countries that, despite very strong growth next year, are even going to make up the lost ground of 2020. China may be just one of these economies that does, but many other economies in, in in Asia, presumably in Europe as well, are going to struggle to, in over a two-year period to go back where they were, say, in 2019. So it really all depends on what you mean with V-shaped. It looks great on paper, but, you know, we're still going to be slightly worse off than we were uh, two years prior. When people look at emerging, and Frederick, I've probably bored you with the same question for years, but I'm going to go there again now. We look at the ones with current account surpluses and the ones with current account deficits, the ones that aren't dependent on international liquidity and the flow of the dollar compared to others. Who are the winners and who are the losers? 
Well, in this environment, really, you want to stick with markets that have policy space and have really uh, shown administrative capacity to, to rein in the virus, been very efficient in rolling out policies. Um, the current account surplus countries are the ones who have policy space, not just in the fiscal side because they don't need foreign borrowing, but also in the monetary side because they can ease policy without having to be worried too much about exchange rate changes. So you have what you have in East Asia, for example, a whole bunch of countries that actually have fairly robust current account surpluses and can thereby roll out a more aggressive stimulus. If you pair that with reforms, uh, efficient administrative programs, you're going to see some of these economies uh, bounce back quite nicely towards the end of this year in 2021. Uh, the problem still is with uh, countries that need to borrow internationally. They're more constrained in terms of fiscal stimulus they can administer. And if there's any disruption in global finance, uh, the bout of risk aversion, you're going to see those currencies react much more forcefully than those of the current account surplus countries. So it's a nice divide. Um, it's just uh, the nature in, in, in episodes like this. Uh, the fundamentals matter and, and fundamentals of current account surplus countries are just stronger. Talk to Dr. Birol from the IEA yesterday just as well, and uh, demand a little bit better than expected. Supply uh, coming off quite aggressively. Who are the major beneficiaries of this? Uh, beneficiaries of this? I always think of India in this scenario as well. Um, well, we're going to see uh, in terms of the beneficiaries of uh, ultimately, um, you know, supply coming back on stream. Uh, you're going to see, I think, some of the East Asian economies being uh, winners, because if we think about uh, some of the, mu- the future demand uh, contours, right, it's going to be digitization, electronics, it's going to be uh, move towards uh, more online services and all that requires infrastructure. But it also requires economies that already have that, um, admin- that, that, that technological infrastructure structure in there. Uh, there are interesting comparisons. Malaysia, for example, much more wired country than Italy is. Uh, we have very even some emerging markets, much more advanced in terms of uh, the usage of internet, the usage of technology uh, than some developed markets. And so uh, these countries are going to benefit from that next wave as we come out of this. Uh, Fred, always difficult to work out what the uh, Trump factor means in terms of dollars and cents for the markets here. But this latest uh, bout of histrionics where the president is now saying he doesn't want to talk to President Xi of China must have some impact on sentiment alongside the the new saber rattling around trade and potential sanctions related to COVID-19 and its origin. How do you price this in? How should investors think about this as we run into the weekend? Well, to be honest, there's going to be some market impact on this, uh, of this, of course. Uh, but we would point out that, you know, in the run-up to the presidential elections, we, everybody expects the rhetoric to get more heated from both sides, um, in terms of China, U.S., even within the U.S., just in that campaign period, you're going to see stronger and stronger words coming out. The question is, is this being followed up with concrete actions? Would the U.S. reimpose tariffs, for example, before the elections? Would the U.S. Uh, enforce uh, technology transfer restrictions? more than they already have done. If that this, uh, these, this rhetoric is actually followed with concrete steps in the coming months, then we probably have a much bigger reaction. But I think at the moment, uh, these words at the margin, they matter, but it, is, it needs to be seen in the context of a heating electoral, presidential electoral campaign in the U.S. Uh, but that's interesting. So, so you would dismiss a lot of this to, da- to, to, to plain old electoral campaigning and hustings. This is not about the deeper issue of the world 
and a backlash against China over the lack of transparency around the origin and the early days of China's treatment of the uh, virus information? Well, I'm really looking about the new information content here. And really, a tweet like that does not provide me with a terribly new insight. Uh, we knew there were tensions in the relationship. We've seen plenty of uh, heated rhetoric on both sides. So from that perspective, it is yet just another tweet, and it doesn't necessarily change the overall direction. Yes, yes, these strong words. Um, but, you know, we knew we already had a, a, a difficult relationship to begin with. So that's why the incremental impact is not going to be overwhelming necessarily until you see really concrete steps. I think that would be the next thing to look for is, are we just going to see a series of tweets and, and, and rhetoric on both sides, or is there going to be some concrete action? And, and that's, I think, not yet priced in. That, that really, that re-escalation, say, of tariff tensions is not priced in. Frederick, thanks so much for joining us. Always good to catch up with you. Best of luck for the rest of your day. Frederick Neumann, the co-head of Asian Economics Research at HSBC. So some terrific questions from uh, high-frequency economics. Um, uh, Carl uh, Weinberg, our friend over at there, just, just posing critical questions for the markets. How long will economic activity be in decline? How long before we get to the bottom? And how many companies are going to survive this lockdown? Of course, we can't answer any of these questions right now, and neither can investors who are active in these markets. We are trading off the latest bit of data or information, as Frederick Neumann pointed out there, which is why we see Asian markets here a little bit firmer, and they've actually been firming on the back of some of that improving factory activity data out of China. But as Fred pointed out, it doesn't tell us anything about the demand shock. It tells us an awful lot about the supply shock and the fact that we can get we can get those factories back and running again, but it doesn't tell us very much at this point about ultimately whether all those goods produced are going to be sold. So what does this look like in terms of the futures? Um, let's show you where the U.S. futures indicate we're going to start the trading session here, because I know there are a few uh, of those analysts out there who think that we are at an important turning point right here and that what we've seen over the week has been a shift in sentiment. We have a modestly positive call to the start of the trading session. We're indicated up about 40 points on the start of the uh, trading day for the Dow. But another very interesting survey coming out of the Fed, which is just worth bearing in mind, even as we got that horrible jobs report yesterday, 36 million jobs lost now on the seven-week tally for the United States in terms of the claims numbers, the Fed putting out its own report and saying 40% of low-income U.S. workers have now lost their jobs. These are the Americans that spend their whole paycheck and sometimes borrow a little bit more just to get through the week. And now 40% of those workers, according to this Federal Reserve report, have lost their jobs currently. It bears on that issue of when do we see demand pick up again. This is a snapshot then of how we finished out uh, the U.S. session in spite of that uh, stronger claims number. And just one more billionaire lining up to tell us uh, how overvalued markets currently look. Mark Cuban 
on CNBC suggesting, quote, I think it's almost impossible to predict where consumer and corporate demand is going to come from. And because of that, it's hard to create a valuation for businesses. And let's just show you uh, how we did uh, week to date then in terms of this argument that some are making as you look at the heightened VIX level, as you look at this slew of big fish who are telling the market that they are not nibbling at the moment. That's at least what they're saying publicly. This argument that we've seen a little bit of shift in tone and we are at important technical levels has bled through in the week's performance. So as you look at the suggestions that we will get a positive start to the trading session today. Let's see whether we can hang on to this, given that you've got people like Mark Cuban telling us that they are reluctant to put money into the market. Uh, Chatting with Peter Toogood, he said most of the managers that he's talking to at the moment are circling around this idea of a 25% cut to earnings for full year 20. 20. Remember, your discounted cash flow model for why you buy equities tells you you buy them because you are buying into future cash flows and profits from those companies. Is 25% the right number or should it be higher in terms of lost earnings for 2020? We will continue to watch, but that's a picture of the week as we've seen it here as we come into this Friday trading session. Just talking about trading, the New York Stock Exchange is set to partially reopen its trading floor on May 26th, but with strict safety measures. The NYSE president, Stacey Cunningham, told the Wall Street Journal that the reopening will be slow and careful. Floor brokers will be allowed to return in small groups and will have to wear face masks as well as have their temperatures checked. Wall Street's famous physical trading floor closed down on March 23rd due to the virus. All trading has uh, since been done electronically and quite frankly, for those who understand the piping of the markets, most of it's done electronically these days anyway. President Trump didn't wear a face mask during another visit to a medical equipment factory, this time in Pennsylvania. Trump said he wanted to stockpile face masks and ventilators to prepare the country for future pandemics. His comments come after a former U.S. official, Rick Bright, testified the Trump administration failed to prepare for the pandemic. Bright told Congress the country could face the darkest winter in modern history, if it doesn't improve its planning. Back to the jobs. Nearly 3 million more Americans have filed for unemployment benefits. That's worse than expected, but marked a sixth straight fall. Uh, was it worse than expected? I thought the number was a little better than expected. I'll, I'll, I'm just, uh, we'll launch an internal inquiry onto that one. Uh, the number marked a sixth straight fall since a peak of almost 7 million at the end of March. Last week's number might also be revised down further after the Connecticut Labor Department announced that its claims number was overstated, blaming a reporting error. In total, 36 million people have filed for unemployment since the pandemic hit the world world's largest economy. Uh, U.S. retail sales are expected to have fallen by a record amount last month. Economists expect volumes to have plunged by 12.3%. That's compared to a previous record drop of 8.7% uh, in March. 
The figures will be released before the U.S. markets open today. The data comes as many U.S. iconic brands have already filed for bankruptcy in recent weeks amid the increased pressure on the sector from the lockdown, including JCPenney, Sears and Brooks Brothers, as well as J. Crew, uh, Neiman Marcus, Intelsat and uh, Avianca. The U.S. House is expected to vote on a new $3 trillion coronavirus relief package today. Speaking to our U.S. colleague, Senate majority, sorry, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said he remains optimistic despite the bill facing an uphill battle in the Republican-controlled Senate. The bottom line is that we have two bad choices here. Do nothing or... Uh, and the deficit will grow worse in the temporary, in temporary, or do something and make it better, ameliorate it. And despite my, you know, uh, worry and concern that our Republicans are sitting on the sidelines, I am optimistic we can get something done. One couple with two reasons to join the applause. His health and uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson leading the nation in a round of applause, of course, for NHS workers and key workers more generally. But that isn't disguising the fact there's been another almighty row between the Mayor of London and the UK government over a mere matter of a four billion pound black hole. Uh, as Britain tries to get back to work, we'll talk about the huge row, ongoing row, in a short while, right here on Scorebox. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Uh, well, not even Steve's driving around London and parking in different locations uh, with his car and paying his congestion charge to TfL has bailed out the business. In fact, TfL is doing so poorly financially at the moment that they've had to take a £1.6 billion government rescue deal. This after TfL, which effectively oversees the transport arrangements around London, warned it was hours away from running out of cash. Uh, let's get out to Steve and talk about this and some of the other London-related stories he's focused on this morning. Morning, Steve. Morning, my friend. Well, look, you and I have had our run-ins with TfL over the years. <laughs> let's be honest about it as well, driving in as long as we have. But look, it's been epic mismanagement, I think. I think how can you have uh, such a huge black hole financially coming into this crisis? And of course, uh, when you are running 85 to 95% less trains as well, uh, and then of course your uh, finances naturally collapse even further, and there's nothing they could have done about the coronavirus side of things. We totally accept that. But the fact is that it's, it's one of those stories we talk about. If you've got a load of debt coming into a crisis, you are less 
well prepared. And that was TfL. That is a fact as well. And, and TfL, i.e. Transport for London, is very, very important politically in this town. Perhaps one of the most important political things because it covers the roads, the trains, the buses, the trams, you name it as well, cycle lanes. It, it's always been a football when Boris Johnson was the mayor, now Sadiq Khan's the mayor. And, and you know, it reminds me of when David Cameron became prime minister and he said, I'm not going to have punch and Judy politics. Well, if anything has happened on this, it is punch and Judy politics because you've had Sadiq Khan saying, we will not carry your messages about staying alert. We are not going to put our train drivers and our TfL staff in danger as well. We want face masks as well. And on the other hand, you've had Boris Johnson saying, we've got to get more trains out there as well. You have epically mismanaged your finances as well. Uh, I'm not giving that guidance on masks. It's up to people's discretion as well. So you can see left, right and centre, Sadiq Khan for Labour, Boris Johnson and the government on the other side have just used coronavirus and transport in and out of London as a political football. I mean, I don't know who's the worst, to be honest, as well. Let's get straight to what's happened as well. They finally agreed a deal to keep TfL financed until September. £1.6 billion, as mentioned as well. 100% service as soon as possible was one of the concessions. Uh, they also agreed that train fares and bus fares need to be increased uh, increased 1% as well. And a long-term review has been extracted by the government of long-term finances as well. Jeff, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get Mike to just show the entrance to uh, Waterloo Station because it is magnificent and it's Friday, so I'm going to do it. So there you go. This is the UK's busiest station. It's got Southwestern Rail. It's got four tube stations. Opened in 1848. 24 platforms, Jeffrey and we know one of them we use very often to get down to Twickenham as well. Uh, 100 million entries and exits every year, which makes it the busiest. We're largest in terms of floor space and platforms. And culturally, Jeff, culturally, it doesn't get any better. It was used for the Bourne ultimatum. It was born when Raquel met Del Boy in Only Fools and Horses. And of course, is the backdrop to one of the greatest songs ever made by the Kinks, Waterloo Sunset. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.